Well, next week is Mother's Day, and you know why all the middle school and high school are going to be here? is because there's special refreshments, special treats. So, uh, well, I don't know whether the mothers will be here, but the kids will be here. So, uh, uh, it's been great to have uh, Jamie come and lead us in worship. It was great to meet him and get to minister alongside of him. Uh, and it's uh, great to have him. Um, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, don't forget tonight at 6 o'clock we'll have a prayer meeting right here in the lobby. And uh, we encourage you to come spend an hour with us praying. Though I'll have a, a sheet there with different things on it to pray about. So come and be a part of that, and we'd be delighted to have you. I think it's great for God's people to come together and pray together. Let me mention to you that uh, Tom Ramsey, one of our staff members here, Tom's mother went home to be with the Lord this past week. And on the one hand, we're glad about that. The last time I visited with her, we actually prayed that the Lord would take her home. Um, and uh, she needed to go home. Uh, but it's always difficult for those that are left. And uh, Tom has his times. He kind of breaks down from time to time. Uh, his mom is gone. And so uh, she's in a better place than she's ever been before. But she's not here. So pray for Tom. Tom has a sister. Pray for her. Other family members. And you may know them even better than I. But let's be pray in prayer for the Ramseys. Also, uh, Jack Lubrick had surgery on Friday morning. I produced a sheet for the prayer meeting this afternoon or this evening with Jack on it. But uh, this is new information, actually, beyond that prayer sheet. Uh, he has been uh, wrestling with a sore, and it wouldn't heal and wouldn't heal. And finally, they believed that the infection went into his bone and so they had surgery on uh, Friday morning and they cleared all that out of there all that infection out of there and so now our prayer is that this thing will begin to heal uh, more rapidly and easier and that Jack will be able to be back doing so many of the things that he's accustomed to doing I love Jack and Mel uh, I think that they are kind of the epitome of what a committed marriage really is, you know, about what it means for there to be intrinsic value in a person, not just value because they make a contribution and, and how uh, one member in a marriage serves the other. And um, so uh, we love those dear folks. I want you to be praying for them. Let's bow together and pray. Father, we thank you today that you are a great and awesome God. I thank you that when I pause like this and come into your presence, I do so only because you give me the strength 
and the breath to do so. Father, we thank you today for Tom and his life and his ministry. Uh, we thank you, Father, for his mom and, and his parents and the many years of ministry they had on the mission field in Italy. God, we thank you for the Ramsey family. And now uh, you've taken Tom's mom home. She's there with you. And uh, we pray for Tom. We pray that you'll encourage him, help him, Father, to be able to accomplish everything he needs to, a lot of things to do now. We pray that you'll enable him to do those things. And we pray for Jack and Mel, Father. We pray that you will give them the strength and the courage and the wisdom that they need to continue on with their lives. And Father, we pray above all else that this sore on Jack will heal now and that uh, it will heal rapidly and easy, easily and that the intravenous uh, antibiotics that he will be taking over the next six weeks, Father, will do its best work in him and that he will soon be about the things that he loves to do and wants to do. So encourage them, Father. And God, we thank you for today. We thank you that in your sovereignty you have brought us together once again. And as we start a fresh look at the Sermon on the Mount, Father, open up our minds and open up our hearts and help us to see the things that you want us to see. I'm amazed sometimes at how people, how you impress people with different things. So God, we pray that you will move us today to be drawn closer to you and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to start on the front end of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. We started in the middle with the Lord's Prayer and uh, we want to start on the front end. The Sermon on the Mount is very, very significant. Um, 44 years ago, uh, I was a young man. I'm old now. I'm not like Don Snow, but I'm old too. Don Snow is really old. Uh, and um, I became 44 years ago the official pastor of the Ames Community Church in East Clackamas County, Oregon. And um, one of the things, uh, pastors sometimes have expectations put on them. And one of the expectations of being the pastor of the Ames Church was that he would be a volunteer fireman for the Sandy Fire Department, District 72. And uh, so I was kind of roped into becoming a fireman. I didn't know anything about being a fireman. And uh, I went to my first meeting, and they gave me a book. The title of the book was Fireman's Basic Training Course. I took the book home, and I never opened it. I thought I would learn everything from the other guys. 
I was heavy on OJT, on-the-job training, and I thought I would learn everything as we went through the process. I didn't read pages 28 to 30, which told you what to do when you are the guy on the back of the fire truck. And, uh, but I watched the guys. You know, the idea was that you get off the fire truck. You have two things. You have a hydrant wrench in one hand. You have the hose in the other hand, a four-inch feeder hose. And you get off the truck. You wrap that hose around the hydrant. And then you proceed to hook it up while the fire truck goes on to the fire, peeling off hose behind him. Well, one day I was at the fire station, and the alarm went off. There's usually two guys on the back of the truck, but this day we were shorthanded, and there was only one guy on the back of the truck, and it was me. And sure enough, he pulled up to the hydrant. I had the hose in one hand. I had the wrench in the other. I jumped off. I dropped the hose. He took off, and I started taking off the hydrant cap, and he's going down the road with his tail flipping behind him. And I run up to the fire truck. I grab the hose. I'm running back to the hydrant. He's headed for the fire. It couldn't have been more Three Stooges than if you planned it. All because I didn't read the manual. All because... I didn't know about wrapping that hose around the hydrant so that when he takes off, the hose will peel off and it won't act like a tail. The Sermon on the Mount is sort of like the manual. The Sermon on the Mount becomes incredibly important to us. I love that God has given us Scripture. He's given us the poetry. He's given us the history He's given us the prophets. He's even given us some things about the future of our planet. He's given to us all of the epistolary literature of the New Testament. And it is all important. Please don't misunderstand me. I believe in the whole Bible, and no part of it is more important than the other. But sometimes there's a piece of it that has a special part to play. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount does for us. I want you to see that the Sermon on the Mount does not repeal the Mosaic Law. It states the principles behind the Mosaic Law. What Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is that he takes Christianity out of the realm of the doing to the realm of the being. That's why so often you have uh, Jesus saying, you've heard it said in the law, da, 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 but I, now I say unto you, be something. Uh, and the result is, is that Jesus takes Christianity into the heart. He takes it out of the realm of what we can see into the realm of what we cannot see what happens inside of a person. The Sermon on the Mount is not a series of rules for the protection of society. It is to develop the individual, 
to fit into the society of the kingdom of God. It doesn't talk about the substitutionary death of Christ. It doesn't talk about the resurrection. It doesn't talk about justification. It doesn't even give the plan of salvation. The Sermon on the Mount speaks to where I live and what kind of person God wants me to be to live where I live. It becomes very important. Um, James T. Fisher was a renowned, world-renowned psychiatrist. And he wrote a book one time entitled A Few Buttons Missing. That's me part of the time. Uh, And on page uh, 273 of that book, he summarized the Sermon on the Mount like this. I want you to hear it. He said this. If you take the sum total of all the authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene, if you were to combine them, define them, and cleave out the excess verbiage, if you were to take only the meat and none of the parsley, if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, you would have an awkward and incomplete summation of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount plays a role in our Christian life because it gives to us the ethical, moral standard for the kingdom. I think sometimes we view Christianity like a Christmas tree. We go out, we we either cut down a beautiful tree or or we go pay for a beautiful tree and we bring it in, we put it into a stand in a corner in our house and we pet it and we love it and we love to smell it and we hang all these ornaments on this Christianity that we have brought into the house. And the more ornaments we hang on it, the better it looks. And the people come in and they say, what a beautiful tree you have. Ultimately, it dies. All the needles fall off. When the needles fall off, the ornaments fall off. I'd rather look at our Christianity like a fruit tree, an apple tree that is planted, that is alive, that has roots that go into the ground. And it's influenced by certain things. There's sunlight, there's nighttime, there's rain, there's other influences that come into that tree. And all of a sudden, because of those influences... Sooner or later, buds begin to show, and blossoms then show. And pretty soon, fruit is produced on this live piece of Christianity that we have brought into our lives. And I think the Sermon on the Mount brings us to that. I think there's five reasons for us to study the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the first one. It shows the need of the new birth. 
if you read through the Sermon on the Mount and you read the kind of person that Jesus wants you to be, you will discover there's no way you can do it on your own. You will discover that there's no way you can be that kind of person without the new birth, without being regenerated. Secondly, it gives insight into the mind of Christ. It shows us that Jesus doesn't think in terms of doing. Jesus thinks in terms of being. Thirdly, it is the only way for happiness uh, to happiness for the believer. Um, we've defined the difference between happiness and joy. We get happiness because of our uh, uh, circumstances, our surrounding situation. We get joy because of who we know our God is. And the joy is something you can't put your finger on. The joy is something that's kind of not tangible. Happiness kind of comes out all over us. The next thing is, it is one of the best means of evangelism. Think of this. Read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Become that kind of person, and everybody you come in contact with will want to be like you. Everybody you come in contact with will notice the kind of person that you have become. And finally, it's pleasing to God. It is a privilege for me, a sinful person, through the new birth and the regeneration, to become the kind of person that God wants me to be. There are six discourses that Jesus gave. This is one of them, the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, given to us in Matthew 5 through 7, gives to us the ethical, moral standard for the kingdom. Where is the kingdom? It is now. We are living in the kingdom. There will be a piece of the kingdom that will come later, but we are also living in the kingdom now. There is the discourse on the present age, Matthew 13. Matthew 13 is the largest concentration of uh, parables than any other place in the Scripture. When those parables are read and interpreted, you come to discover what the age of the kingdom, what things should be like at the present time in the kingdom. There's the upper room discourse uh, in John 13 through 17. That's where Jesus talks about the church, how the church will come into being and what the church will be like. Then there's the program for the kingdom in Matthew 9 and 10. Then there's the concerns of the kingdom in Matthew 17 and 18. The fact that he would be a stumbling block. The fact that people would hate him and therefore people are going to hate us. These are significant concerns. And then there is the Olivet Discourse given in Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, Christ's view of the kingdom in the future. And let me say that Matthew 24 and 25 does not talk about the rapture. Jesus is talking about the kingdom 
the millennial kingdom. He is not talking about the rapture in these passages. So we come to the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. And it goes like this in Matthew 5.1. And when he saw the multitudes, let me clarify who the multitude is. It's back in chapter 4, verse 23. Listen while I read. It's not on the screen. And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, taken of various diseases and pains and, and, and demoniacs and, and uh, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. A great multitude followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea. And so Jesus is looking down at this multitude, some of which he's healed from all of these things. He looks down on the multitude, and uh, he went up on a mountain, and after he sat down, circle the words, he sat down, they become very important. See, whenever a rabbi was going to teach something significant, he would always sit down. We have the same thing that follows through today. When a professor is given the head of a department, we say he is the chair. When the pope speaks, the pope speaks, it is said in Latin, ex cathedra, meaning that he speaks from the chair or from the seat of authority. So when Jesus would sit down, he is saying, I'm going to say something significant. By the way, my stool doesn't qualify. Okay. Uh, so Jesus, so, so Matthew is very careful to explain to us that Jesus sat down. And, and in fact, in the next verse, it says, and opening his mouth, which is uh, kind of a, a phrase in Koine Greek to tell us again that he's going to say something very significant. And so he looks at the multitudes. He sat down. He's ready to say something significant. I think that the compassion of Jesus was directed primarily to the unlovely and the unwanted people around him. Compassion of Jesus is seen in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, 14, 14, 15, 32, places where it says, Jesus looked at the multitude and had compassion on them. Compassion in English is a word we get from Latin. Uh, it's made up of two words, cum and passion. And uh, it's, uh, it, it literally means to suffer with. So to show compassion on someone means to suffer with them. Uh, Tom, Tom sat in my office this week, and we kind of cried together. And I, 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 it's hard to be with someone who's just lost a loved one and for me not to kind of feel that pain. And uh, 
uh, when, G, when it says Jesus had compassion on them, it means he suffered with them. The word we have in Greek uh, for compassion is my favorite word. Uh, I've told you this when we were in Philippians. The word is splunkna. Remember that word? Splunkna. You've got to remember that word. It's the word which means the inner parts. And that's why the King James originally translated the word bowels of mercies. It means that you have an experience that affects you internally. It's like when you come close to a wreck. Uh, what happens? Your, your stomach gets a little churny. Uh, it's like when you have to get up in front of people. What do we say? You get butterflies. See, because there's something going on in here. That's splunkna. Well, this word is the same word. Splunknizomai is the word for compassion. And Jesus uh, looked down at the people and he felt in his, in, in his very insides what was going on in the lives of those people. I also want you to see that these are not some random thoughts given by Jesus. This is the official manifesto of the king. This is Jesus, the king, in the kingdom, telling us these are how my servants will live. And the first thing he says is blessed or blessed. He says, and it's sometimes translated happy. And I want you to see that this word literally describes the inner joy that is untouchable by the world. This is joy that you can't get from anything earthly. This is joy that you can't get from anything human. So when Jesus uses the word blessed, makarios, he is saying that you are going to get a blessing like nothing you've ever experienced before. It has as its, it has its secret within itself and is not dependent upon the circumstances of life. It is untouchable by the world. It is not self-contained. It is, uh, it is something that is independent from everything human and everything earthly. This kind of blessing is the blessing Jesus wants to give to us. It has its opposite in the Bible. That's called woe. Woe to you. And uh, whenever it is pronounced by God, it is a judgment pronouncement by God, either blessing or woe. It's sort of like when Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Let it not be, neither let it be afraid. So Jesus is going to bless you if you are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Now, there are two words that are typically used in the Greek New Testament for poor. The first one is the Greek word penace. 
And panace is a poverty that you can be, but in the midst of that poverty, you have strength, you have resources physically, you might even have a talent or a gift that you could go out and add so that you are not as poor as you were to begin with. So panace has something that you can do about your poverty. The word that Jesus uses here for poor in spirit is tokos. Tokos. And tokos is a kind of poverty that I cannot make any contribution to get out of. I have no strength. I have no contribution. I have no ability. I have no finances. I have no resources to get out of that kind of poverty. This is the new standard for pleasing God. It is inward humility of spirit rather than outward pride. Uh, This person has no resources in himself and is a destitute, cowering, cringing beggar before God. This is the place where every one of us has to come if we are going to get saved. This is the place where every one of us has to, has to get if we are going to have a relationship with God. The best illustration I know is in Luke 18, where Jesus talked about a Pharisee and a tax collector. This is not on your screen. Listen, it's Luke 18. Uh, I'm going to start at verse 10, go through uh, verse 14. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the other was a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. This is what the Pharisee said. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I pray, I pay tithes uh, for all that I get. Now, all of that is good, right? It's good not to be a swindler. It's good not to be a murderer. It's good uh, 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 to pay, to, to tithe, and it's good to fast, to pray. These are good things. The tax collector, on the other hand, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. He was so poor in spirit, he wouldn't even look up to where God was, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Notice, the sinner. Uh, Jesus is saying, this is the kind of person. So in the next verse, Jesus says, I tell you, that man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So the tax collector got justified because he came. This is where we all have to come. You have to understand, if you are going to come to God, you don't bring anything to the table. You have to be totally, completely 
dependent upon God. You know? You know you're dependent for the next breath you're going to take? It's not yours if God doesn't want to give it to you. The very strength to get out of the chair and walk out of the room is given to you by God. God wants us to come to him knowing that we bring nothing to the table. Our world tells us all the time that we are good. God tells us that in his presence we are nothing, a nobody. And you don't become somebody until you first become a nobody. That's God's standard for entering the kingdom. And that's why he uses tokos here. See, this refers to begging on the inside. This refers to poverty of spirit when nothing else can take over. This is not new. This is not new. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, it says, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and trembles at my word. In Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. In Psalm 51, 17, David's psalm of repentance, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. God will not despise. See, God says, if you're going to come to me, you've got to come broken. You've got to come knowing that in your spirit, you don't bring anything to the table. You've got to come in such a way that you are totally, unconditionally dependent upon God for everything that God wants to give to me in my salvation and everything that God wants to give to me in my day-to-day life. And what happens? I get the kingdom of God. I get the kingdom of God. Uh, Blessed is the poor in spirit, for his is the kingdom of God, meaning that it's in an emphatic position. It is, it is certain. Nobody can take it away from him. His is the kingdom of God. The kingdom is theirs because they have realized their own helplessness without God and have learned to trust and obey. In other words, we learn that we are totally helpless and that everything that we get, including the next breath, comes from God. And that's about as basic as it gets, the next breath. It's not a wish. It's a fact. Theirs is the kingdom of God. It is theirs alone. And this kingdom is anywhere God's will is done, as perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we talked about the kingdom in the Lord's Prayer. That's what the kingdom is. You want God's kingdom? You've got to have a place where everybody in the kingdom is totally in poverty, dependent upon God. That's what total depravity is all about. So how do you become poor in spirit? Well, first of all, you don't do it by yourself. 
That's what the whole monastic system was all about. A bunch of guys got together, uh, stopped talking to each other, put on dirty old robes, went up on the mountains, and sat all by themselves for the rest of their lives. They thought that would get them glory. They thought that would get them the, the kingdom. We can't do this by ourselves. My only suggestion to you, if you want to be poor in spirit, is to ask God for it. Ask God for it. You know, this week, I asked three people, what do you pray for? What do you pray for? And, and, and they started telling me, and I said, no, 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 I, I mean, what do you ask God for yourself? What is it that you ask God for you? I, I know you're praying for people to get saved, and you're praying for our church and all this other stuff, but, but for you, what do you ask God for? Not one of them said, I ask God to make me poor in spirit. And you know what? I'm not surprised, because I don't either. And I'm guessing most of you don't. But I wonder if maybe we shouldn't start asking God to make us people poor in spirit, cringing before God. Do we come into the presence of God with too much pride? Uh, maybe we should ask God to give us a greater dependence upon him. You know, you've, you've heard people say, boy, don't ask God to make you humble. You, you'll be sorry if you do that. But you know what? That's exactly what he wants us to be. He wants us to be humble. I, I just in the last few weeks, I've thought to myself, because I didn't know how to tell you to become poor in spirit, except to say, ask God to make you poor in spirit. And if I was going to tell you that, I had to start asking God to make me poor in spirit just a few weeks ago. And, uh, and so maybe this morning when you take communion, you remember the Apostle Paul says, stop, examine yourself, take a moment to consider that this bread and this cup is a representation of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Examine yourself. Maybe it's a good time for me not only to confess sin, but to say, God, make me poor. Make me tokos. Bring me to the place where I realize I don't bring anything to the table. Everything that I am, everything that I want to be, everything that I'm able to do is because I depend on you and you alone. Perhaps it's good for us to ask God, God, make me poor in spirit. Let's pray.
Father, thank you this morning for your word. I, I'm not sure I fully understand it. I'm not sure I've communicated it very well. I do think, Father, that as you could not show yourself to Moses, certainly you couldn't show yourself to us. We could not bear it. We would die on the spot. So, Father, we ask you, show us what poor in spirit means. Bring us into dependence upon you. I think sometimes, I think I know too much and can do too much. Allow us, Father, to depend on you for knowledge and doing so that you are the one who is in charge. And we'll thank you in Jesus' sweet name. Amen.